from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Crime Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. Carrie Flanagan, I'm an actor. Jennifer Kerfman, I'm an actor. And Kit Lavoie, I am a director and a writer. This is the first episode of the third season of the Cry Havoc podcast, and today what we're going to talk about is something that actually has been an implicit part of many of the topics that we've covered before, but something that we've never really talked about explicitly. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is the idea that every actor really is unique and is made up of their experiences, the things they think, the things they believe, the people they've known, the places they've been, and it all makes up a constellation of intellectual and emotional factors that makes them uniquely who they are. And the reason that people come to see live theater is to see individual people with their individual makeup encountering plays and seeing how the individual actor in a role comes across playing a role that perhaps many other people have done before, which is the reason it's very worthwhile to go see Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and Olivier's Hamlet and uh, Ray Fine's Hamlet. And the idea that to go see someone's Hamlet is something very specific. What that means is the way that that actor encounters the role. And one of the great challenges of being an actor is figuring out how to really allow yourself to live inside a role, how to allow a role to be uniquely yours, because there are many things about being an actor that sometimes encourages people to walk away from that thing that makes them uniquely themselves. And so what we're talking about today is how to get out of your own way to allow what makes you unique as an actor to make its way into all of your performances. And really what it's about is the ways in which a role lives on you in a way that it could not possibly live on anyone else, where it is full of moments that is the character doing things that somehow make more sense in the body of that actor than the thing that anyone would have expected that character to do by reading it on the page. So let's start off by talking about what is it? What are the reasons why and the ways that people do get in their own way when they're playing a role? I think a lot. one of the more obvious things is <clears throat> either the size or the history of the role itself or some iconic person that was attached to it at some point. Dorothy, for instance, and we automatically think of uh, Judy Garland, or, um, or just the role of Hamlet itself and how iconic the role itself has become. The anxiety that's attached to that gets people in their own way because they begin doing imitations of other performances. I actually knew someone who did a production of uh, The Wizard of Oz, and the direction they were given was to go home and watch the movie and learn how to do it like uh, <laughs> Judy Garland did. So, Or the opposite becomes true, trying to do it not the way that Judy Garland did. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. But it's all around Judy Garland, one way, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, not to do with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually touches on a whole category of things that I think very often causes anxiety in an actor, which is expectation. That idea of what is it that they think they are supposed to be doing. 
Um, and certainly if they have seen someone else do the role, that's a very clear way of doing it. But also it's something that, you know, people can get in their head. They can read something on a page and uh, get in their head how they think it's supposed to sound, what it's supposed to mean. And I mean, I actually relatively recently had an experience where an actor was working on a play that I had actually written. And when the director asked them why they were doing the thing that they did, their answer was, oh, well, it just seems from the text that this is what she's doing. It's obvious that this is what she's doing. Now, I'm the person who wrote the text, and I will tell you for sure that thing that she thought was so obvious that it's what the person was doing was not, in fact, what the intention of the playwright was. So that idea of trying to outguess the playwright at what the playwright wanted you to do, it both keeps you bound down by some expectation, but also you're very often going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And well, you certainly can never know mind. when you're right <laughs> and when you're wrong. Right. There's also something to be said, there's something in there too about the assumption or the expectation, I guess, in a way, of a character being about the things they say and only the things they say, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. not true of any human I know. So um, I think in general, taking for granted that the character is being honest 100% of the time is, and saying exactly what they think or mean is not a way in. Well, I think that that really gets into something that's just a really important thing to embrace, which is that you can't break the script. The script is always going to be what the script is. If your character ends up shooting someone at the end of the scene, they are going to shoot the person at the end of the scene. If your character leaves their wife, they are going to leave their wife. If your character accuses someone of taking the money, they are going to accuse someone of taking the money. So that idea that you're not going to ruin anything by doing something that is unexpected, by doing something in any given moment that seems like it's not exactly what the script is asking you to do, because you, the audience's experience of it will always be what your character ultimately did what your character does in the play, they're not going to undo it just because you made a choice for a different reason that your character said a specific line than perhaps the one that you think the playwright intended. Mm -hmm. Especially with a play like Hamlet, where everybody knows what's going to happen in the play. So they, you know, trying to fit into the audience's expectation of what Hamlet is, they, I mean, they already have this idea. They already know the play, mostly. And... They're not coming to, like you said here, a reading out loud of the play of Hamlet. They want to see what it is about these people and why they do these things. And that's so often not, you know, that's not part of what you build into your performance if you're trying to, like, give people what they're looking for. There, There's no moments of surprise or, or, or discovery, which is, you know, Hamlet is all about surprise and discovery, like finding things out that you didn't know and if you know if you if you remove if you if you layer on what everybody expects then it's just going to be exactly what they think it's going to be which is why would you go see that and that actually it's something that's not just what the audience expects but i think a lot of times the hard one of the hardest things to overcome is what you expect of the role especially frankly if it's a role you've always wanted to play if you fought really hard to get this part and you've got this picture in your head of what you always imagined your Malvolio was going to be. And there you are, actually in the role and being asked to play the character. And the character doesn't know what's going to happen in the play, doesn't know where they're going to end up. 
And, you know, you need to be able to walk into a, into a rehearsal process and discover the character afresh, discover your character in the world of the play as it's set up uh, by the uh, director and with the different characters played by the specific actors who are playing them. And if you're in there with a picture in your head of what you imagine your performance was going to be like, there's just an extra person in that play with you that there's no part for. And I would argue you're probably not on any real level engaging anyone around you because you're right. You're having a scene with the person that you are imagining versus anyone who's actually in the scene. Well, yeah, there's something that happens, especially with those more iconic roles, but it can happen really with, with any play that you approach or any mm -hmm. character that you approach where you build a set of rules around the character. This is the kind of person who, and they're not necessarily given to you by the playwright. They are, pro you know, pretty much you're, you're imposing something on a character that isn't really there. And then you've built a brick wall up between yourself and the work that you really need to do with that character. Mm -hmm. and, and I think actually you've struck on something that I, I think is actually, I'd never really thought about it in these terms, but is an interesting separation here that there are some times that the expectation is about what you're supposed to do. And sometimes it's about what you hope to do and what you wish to do. But either way, it's something I think we've talked about in earlier episodes, is that idea that rehearsal, and especially early rehearsal, is about finding out what happens to you. And that's really what we're talking about, that unique constellation of emotional and intellectual triggers and, and things like that, is that is that you want to be able to walk into rehearsal and really encounter the text and the other people and find out how you should live in the role. Because almost always, the key is not going to be anything you know before you start really digging down and getting down and dirty with the role. And so if you've decided ahead of time, either because this is what Hamlet's supposed to be, or, oh, I've always wanted to play a Hamlet that is this, you're not digging, you're not looking for that unexpected thing. You're not looking for that glorious moment that happens in rehearsal where in the middle of a run you try something and the whole play opens up in front of you in a way that you could never have expected because that's what we're talking about is, is, is that idea that y there are ways that that play is going to encounter all of these things that you are not even conscious about about yourself. There will, things that, there will be things that come into play that you never had any idea that they would come into play. And you need to, in rehearsal, give yourself and your instrument, that word that we don't like using, but <laughs> we'll use it because it fits, um, but give it the opportunity to see what it's going to do. And if you're walking in and either doing something because you think it's what it's supposed to be or because it's what you wish it would be, you're never going to find that thing that is going to make your performance unique and extraordinary. That one, that performance of that role that only you could give. Well, and especially if you come into the rehearsal locked down like that, there's really no need for rehearsal. Why are you there? I mean, you know, other than go stand over there and rehearse the lines like you did at home in your mirror to that person. Like, there's no... I mean, there's rehearsal for a reason, and there's usually four weeks of rehearsal for a reason. Mm. And there's more than one person in the play for yes, a reason. Yes, for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where do you guys think that certainly if there are ways that your expectation of what the role or the moment is going to be uh, can get in your way. What about your expectations of yourself? <laughs> I hate it. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think to be any good at what you're doing on stage, you have to be you have to be open to your natural triggers, your things that are your things that most people are not actively conscious about, including actors. I mean, that it's our job to kind of get better at recognizing those things, but we're still human beings, and people spend a good majority of their day trying to pretend those things aren't there or ignoring them altogether. <laughs> so I think you, you know, normal human defense mechanisms get in the way as an actor because, but you have to learn to, I don't know, you have to learn to kind of leave that at the door, I guess. Is that kind of where, you know, if you were saying, like, I wouldn't do something this way, like, I don't understand why the character does this because I wouldn't do this? Is that, like, you getting in your own way? Yeah, and the funny thing is, 95% of the time when I've ever heard anyone say that, yeah, they would. <laughs> they just don't, they don't, including me, you just, oh, I would never do that. Come on, like, you don't, A, you don't know because you're not in this circumstance, and, like, until you throw yourself in there and see what you would actually do. And, and I think that that really does get into that idea of the fear of failure, which I think oh, is yeah, yeah. the great enemy of an actor. Because the point of rehearsal, again, is going and finding out what happens. If you are not falling on your face in rehearsal, you're not rehearsing hard enough. If you feel like every time you do something, it works fine, then you're not trying interesting enough things. Um, you know, and I think that that's something you need to risk sucking to be really great. Uh, you know, you need to risk chasing something down and finding out it's totally inappropriate for the play. But if you're in there and, you know, and you're afraid, which is what that comes down to, that idea of, I don't think I would ever do this. Well, you do. Your character in the play does. So you need to figure out and get behind it and believe why you would do that. Yeah. And thing. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, the people in, in the audience would never believe that you're doing it either. Right. Yeah. But it all, but it all ultimately comes down to why are you stopping for a moment to talk about that? Your character does do it. You will have to figure it out at some point. So do something. Mm -hmm. Try something. If it doesn't work, who's hurt? Who's hurt? The worst thing that you learn is that thing that you tried was not the right thing. And more often than not, when something doesn't work, it gives you a really clear clue. You come out on the other end and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that wasn't right, but it made me want to try something else. Let's go back and go again. Mm -hmm. But if you're not willing to try something until you're sure it's going to work, again, all you're ever going to do is try the things that you think should be in your performance from the first day that you show up. That's also tying back into it. I just remembered a director that I worked on a play once. Some, another actor said that in the room and he was definitely at his... And it was one of those 24-hour reads, 29-hour read, reading contracts, which means you have a very specific amount of time you could use the actors. And they tend to be musical, so it's a boatload of stuff they're trying to teach you. They don't have time for a lot of things. And I remember one, one actress said, uh, but I quote-unquote, I don't understand why she, this character would do this. I would never do that. And without blinking, he said, well, thank God this isn't a play about you then, right? <laughs> <laughs> To which I laughed quietly in the corner. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But that gets into why it's really interesting, that idea of watching people encounter a role and different people encounter a role. And the reason why Jenny would figure out that she would do that thing versus the reason that Jen would versus the reason that Kerry would is the thing that makes the characters unique. I mean, again, it is something we've said before, but that question, the question should not be what would I do in this situation, but what would the situation have to be for me to do what the character would do? 
And I think as long as you come up with your own individual reason and are as honest in the moment and trying to figure out what it is, my version of it, Jenny's version of it, Jen's version of it, no one's version of it is going to be the right one. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's what everyone gets, even including myself, you get hung up on and you think that there is a right way to do it. You were the most moved by this one. You were the, I would argue you'll always be the most moved. I did air quotes. The most <laughs> moved if, if the person is actively engaged in meeting the role. I am without fail, I think the most moved when I see a play in moments that are surprising to me that don't go the way I expected them to. I actually uh, recently uh, saw the production of Angels in America that's running at the Signature Theater. And um, I love that play, love that play, love that play, love that play, and thought it was a, a, a really good production. I enjoyed it a lot. But the things that moved me the most, there were a few moments that are not my favorite moments of writing. In fact, one of them I think is my least favorite scene in uh, in the play of a play that I love, but uh, the one where uh, uh, Hannah meets the homeless woman in the Bronx. But the way that the woman who played the homeless woman played it, it was so moving. The fact that there was this point where she knew the answer to a question and her joy that this actor obviously found through rehearsal. It was the way it came out was not something anyone could have just planned at home. But this joy of this very downtrodden and crazy person at the fact that at long last they had something to contribute was so unbelievably moving. And I don't think that that's what the intention was where that, where that was, uh, when that was written, I suspect. But it was something that was so unexpected and so moving. And other things in the play that are just moving on the page were wonderful, but did not grab me by the throat in the way that that moment did, that very unexpected moment did. And really what it was is it was an incredibly human moment because that's the thing. People don't behave like they think they're going to behave. People don't behave like they wish they would behave or wish they had behaved. When people are really in high-stakes situations, they just go. And that's what you really need to be able to do in rehearsal is get out of your own way so you're going, so you're doing, so you're not thinking in the moment and you're responding um, and that's when the, that's where you discover the really fascinating moments again those moments that could only come from you well I think it's interesting because I think a lot of um, times we come into rehearsal or whatever and you, ch- you try to and I think it's the ego part of what we do but you try to you kind of try, try to outsmart or you think you're going to outsmart everyone and you come up with this brilliant choice that you're going to do you're going to do this thing and uh <laughs> I just saw an interesting... I saw the Colbert Report, actually. And uh, Charlie Rose is on it. And he was talking about his interviewing process. <laughs> and I just thought this was really fascinating. And I think it really can apply. Colbert was actually teasing him about his... The way he questions people. And he said... And he, about how he questions people and then gives them the answers. And he kind of did a mock version of it. And he said... He asked a question. And he said, and if the answer is this then da-da-da-da-da, and if it's not, then da-da-da-da-da. So he's like, that's how you ask questions. Like, you give them the answers. And Charlie Rose said, he was like, no, I find that if you give them a couple choices, if you give them a couple choices, they, people inevitably come up with something much more interesting as a third choice. When, if you hadn't given them choices at all, they probably would have said one of the two things you said. Which I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting. And I went to a script, and I was reading it, and I thought, how could I apply this? And I th- read just a page and I wrote down two really obvious choices of what I can do 
looked at them, and I thought, if these aren't options, and then instantaneously I thought of a much, in my opinion, much more interesting third option. My point being, it's not always the first most brilliant idea you have. Like, just get out of your way. Just do something. And then do something else. Then do something else. Then do something else. And just see what comes out of it. Yeah, and, and there's something that's so great about what you said there, too, about that, that it was, it was the most interesting choice well to me. Well, that's the point. Yeah. You're the one who's playing the role. And, you know, again, what we want to see, what the audience is play, paying to see you pay, play the role versus someone else is what is interesting in the role to you? What parts of this person's experience move you? And, and that's, what makes, that's what makes it unique and, again, a performance that only you could give. And I think that comes up, trusting that comes over a period of time and also a, a certain amount of self-confidence that um, you gain over time. That being said, I do think it's a much easier thing to learn. And if I was taught much younger, if I was taught that you are an interesting person, when you get on stage and you connect to what's going on, it comes through your specific filter. No one else could do it the way you're doing it. And you, better or worse, is not a question. It's like you're doing it. No one else can do it that way. If I had learned that younger, I wonder what I would have done. But (laughs) yeah, I definitely think, you know, when when you're young, you have this idea that no one would want to see you do anything. That's why you're playing this character, because they want to see what the character what is. the exciting person does, and <laughs> right, you, right, you right. get to be exciting while you're playing this character. The exciting but person. really, you are just as interesting. And it's you doing that that is interesting. You, the way you are right now. Well, it's, so, it's as simple as, I remember in my voice class in grad school, they... Um, you'd be singing a song or doing a monologue or anything and it's human nature especially when you're standing in front of people or if you're nervous period to lock on your breath to just kind of hold your breath at certain points really subtle moments you might not even realize you're doing it but when you're getting called out by a teacher who's saying just breathe just just breathe just breathe the second you breathe the second anyone in front of the class would just start breathing it was this most fascinating thing to watch they were just a human being up there alive because they're breathing <laughs> and that was it that's all it took <laughs> that's all it took you go on from there but it, it's it's amazing what you bring to the table just by coming to the table there is something <laughs> you're right about just that idea of being a person because um, you know too often people you watching see, we people yeah. watch because it's so fascinating mm-hmm. because people aren't people in the grand central station aren't focused on being watched they're just behaving they're being people it's where we drop that is the second that we're aware that 70 people to 1,000 people are watching us. Mm-hmm. And we start to try to outsmart everything. And it, it's infinitely more interesting to try to remember to just be behaving, just be doing something. Anything, almost. Anything, almost. <laughs> like, literally. Well, actually, or seriously, watching anyone do actually do anything is more interesting than watching someone pretend to do something more interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it just took, it was something actually in, in, in uh, one of our rehearsals uh, for something the other day, we were rehearsing a scene and somebody in the middle of it, somebody was sitting in a chair, the other person pushed the chair away, and then the other person just picked up the chair and moved it and put it back where it belonged. And it was like this little thing, it was built in what the person was working on, but it was such an extraordinarily interesting moment to watch this person just deal with the chair not because it was time to put the chair away but it just felt so much like what that character would do in that moment and it's not because of anything 
from the characters, nothing that was planned, but there was just that came out of the moment. And there's something about that that's so much more interesting watching someone actually put a chair away for a reason that makes sense to them than watching someone rail at the stars because they think they're supposed to. Well, I was actually, I, I guess I brought up Grand Central for a reason because this happened the other day. I was walking through Grand Central and they were having some kind of car, you know, show. There was a car in there and, I don't know, some kind of nice car. And they were <laughs> somebody had a mic on and there was a whole show about the car and this, you know, flashy, flashy, flashy. And I look <laughs> around and the... I was just looking at the people watching, and there was one guy sitting on the ground right next to this crowd, but he was not paying attention to the person doing their thing. He was, I don't know where he was or what he was thinking about, but that guy had my attention for a solid 10 minutes because I was just <laughs> waiting. He was so deep in thought and trying to work something out in his head. He was infinitely more interesting to watch. Kit and I saw an entire production, an entire production, of course we did, um, of uh, one... <laughs> we did not storm out halfway through. <laughs> oh, oh, like not we one actor. Like <laughs> <we're just> <laughs> no. Um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, we saw a college production of it, and there was this mental patient in the background. I don't know if he ever had any lines. He didn't. He didn't have any lines. <laughs> and we, I... I did, and I, I, we talked about it afterwards. I just watched him the entire time and it wasn't because he was stealing trying to steal focus or anything you could just tell that he was so engrossed in whatever it was that he was doing and he was actually doing something and it was it was wonderful and he was such an and part of it is i think because he didn't have any lines he could do whatever he wanted Mm -hmm. but there was this extraordinary freedom in it Mm -hmm. That was just so compelling. He was actually, I would argue, the most clearly drawn character in the entire production. I had such a clear sense of who this person was and how he got there and how he felt about being there. Um, You know, but the trick, of course, is, is when you do have lines, when you do have obligations to the text, how do you keep that freedom? And I think a big part of it is to be clear about what your obligations are and what your obligations aren't. I mean, your obligations are to say the lines. Mm. Your obligations aren't to hit certain words or say them for exactly the reason that you've deduced the playwright imagined he wanted you to say it. Um, You know, you need to find your own reasons that it's incredibly important for you to say this thing now. Um, And there's no wrong answer. There is no wrong answer when it is your version of this character. Of course, and it's actually something else I think is worth talking about, when you're in a production, there's a director. And if it's a production of a new play, there's a playwright. Um, and I think there's a degree to which your uh, can, your expectation of what they expect of you can also get you in your own way a lot. Um, you know, that... I mean, I certainly know I have cast people a lot of times and you see them spending the first week and a half of rehearsal trying to convince me that I did a good that it was a good idea for me to cast them. Well, I've already cast them. I would really just assume they get to work. Um, you know, and and not try to second guess why they were cast and get in there and and get to work. But I mean, I don't know what your guys' feelings about that are how how interacting with, you know, either what the expectations of the director or the player or actually the other actors too uh, can can impact on your freedom. I think um, when I step into rehearsal, just like you were saying that the only obligation you have is to say the lines, that the responsibility is mine to come up with my own logical path to 
towards saying those lines, but it is my job to say those lines. It's my job to listen to the director and say those lines standing where the director wants. We're going to talk about the arc of the play, the arc of the character, to whatever extent that particular collaboration requires it. And the same thing having the playwright in the room. You, you do have an obligation to the text. You do have an obligation to the director and the collaboration. You have an obligation and an opportunity for, with all of those collaborations as well, including the other actors. So I guess I end up feeling that my logical path toward what makes it make sense, my reasoning behind all of that, that's my work. That's, that's what I get to focus on. I still have to get to the points that the play and the director require of me, but I, I get to map it out for myself. Yeah, and I think very often, you know, that you as an actor can really, and again, especially early on, there comes a point at which, and we should, you know, we'll talk about this too, um, but there comes a point at which you're opening in a week and you need to be doing what the show's going to be. But early on, you want to, for yourself, again, that idea of figuring out what happens to you. But also, it's really about uh, giving the director options letting the director see things that he never would have thought of. Not because you're sitting home thinking, if I was directing the show, how would it go? But again, letting him see, I cast this person because I think they are an interesting choice for this role. Go and be your person and be your person in that role and give them options. I mean, again, that moment of the person moving the chair. What a lovely, as a, as a director, what a great gift for someone to do that, because you know what, it never would have occurred to me to have them move the chair in that moment, because it's not a moment about moving the chair, but you know what, there was something that was going on between those two characters that actually made that the perfect thing to do in the person, in the character as played by the person who was doing it, which, after all, is what the play is going to be. So right. it's, you know... Right. The, if you're cast. Yeah, so the director, actually, if they're if the director is thinking clearly they're not they are trying to get you to be something that you are not they're trying to make a play out of the people that they have cast well and it's a room full of people with an opportunity to learn from each other Mm -hmm. i actually learned the casting and everything in a really interesting way i was i was replaced an actor in a reading and the day before it went up they had all been rehearsing for about i think a week or something and they bought me in because I knew the director and she brought me in and I met the writer then we did it we didn't have a lot of chit chat we didn't have a lot of time I really just kind of had to make a big choice I had I took the script home decided came up with ways that I can get behind why the the character said the things they did and just made that choice and did it play went went on we did it we did the reading I we had a reception after and the writer came up to me and she said <laughs> it's it's awesome she went you know, I didn't want, uh, I didn't want you. Because <laughs> um, she got my picture the day before, but the director, I didn't know about any of this. She got my picture the day before. She didn't want me because I'm a redhead, and she was very, she had a very specific picture in her head of these people, and red hair didn't fit into it. Irish didn't fit into it, I guess. But, um, and she said, and just everything about the way I did it was not at all what she imagined when she wrote it or whatever, but she said she she was very thankful to me and she wants me to continue with the project even though it's completely different than the way she wrote the play or the character um because i didn't have a chance to second guess myself i didn't have a chance i just had to do i had to do something it benefits a ben- it, she, uh, she saw something that she didn't imagine when she was writing the play 
Yeah, and that you're you know you are there as a as an actor or as a director to elevate what is on the page. And I say that as a playwright, that's what you hope for from people. And again, that idea that that I, being tied down by the expectation of what is expected of you by the play, you're not going to break the play. The play <laughs> has been written. It is going to be what the play is going to be. It is the nuance and it is the surprise and it is the, the things that make us lean forward in our seats and wonder what exactly was that that was going on underneath that line that makes live theater thrilling to watch. And that's what the actor can bring. Again, that thing that only they could bring mm -hmm. because uh, if they get out of their way, because it's the way that they specifically encounter the play. And I would, I would really argue that this, because you think in terms of as the play goes on, it gets more, you know, frozen as they call it, they freeze the play. And or more importantly, I have these conversations with a lot of friends of mine who are covers on Broadway and, and understudies. The big conversation is how do you make that your own? How do you make something where literally you're being told, in most cases, to to do the performance of the person that is playing the role more regularly? But I I have always imagined I haven't had the chance to yet. But I've always imagined that if I were understudying, that I would approach it in all the same way. I would layer on, you know, the physicality and treat it the same way I'd treat the lines. These are the lines I have to say. Why? Okay, so I got to get behind it. Why do I believe that? Okay, I have to stick my arm out really far to the right on this line. I have to get behind that. Why do I stick my arm out really far at this line? And so it's not an imitation. It's still, you're still hitting all the same marks. You're still under the right light. You just might have you're still, more You're still marks raising your pitch. I mean, literally, I, I've heard things like from certain productions. I've heard things that are uh, as specific as, oh, no, because I have had a friend who went on for a week for a pretty big show, and she said that um, there were times that the, 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 the actress playing the role would go up and pitch just a little bit in her line, and that she was given that note as an understudy, that when she said this one line in the middle of one scene, that she had to make sure that she went up and pitch just a little bit at the same part. So, I mean, it's that specific sometimes, and you can't really argue with that, so you have to find a way to make it. You can still make that your own, too. You just gotta get behind why. Yeah. Why? I think uh, also before we move on from the concept of, of the expectation, uh, two very specific things that I see all the time that I think is, is helpful is the idea of that you've got to give yourself some place to go at the beginning of a scene. You know, that idea that you need to do the arc, the scene needs to have an arc, therefore you can't. Start up here and yelling, because then where will you go? Because volume's your only yeah, option. Exactly. Well, <laughs> you'll go someplace. Um, you know, I certainly know the big fights I've had usually go someplace after they get there. The really important arguments are ones that actually are have are are had in 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 different tones than screaming at each other. And hopefully, a play, you know, that is well written and compelling can sustain that. Um, but, you know, there is sort of that expectation, but especially early on in rehearsal, if you feel like you want to be screaming at the person when it starts, do it. Find out what happens. You might find out it's wrong. You might find out it's exactly right. You're never going to know until you try it. And again, what is right is the thing that moves you, the thing that makes it feel important to you to do. You know, that's how you will know that you've found the right choice. And also the idea, which is similar, is that idea of how will I get to the next thing? 
that I think people do have that in mind, which is I have an impulse. I want to do something, but I know I need to do this thing, you know, half a page from now. I don't know how I do that if I do this other thing, so I'll wait. But especially if you are in an, a part of rehearsal where you're not locked yet, do it. <laughs> See, what, See what happens. Because very, 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 very often the most interesting things in rehearsal come out of problem solving for the corners that you paint yourself into. You've got to be brave enough to paint yourself into a corner because so often it's that leap you take to get out of it that turns out to be the really wonderful thing, actually. Because so long as you're doing the straight and narrow, so long as you're doing the thing that you think is the path that the play has laid out for you, you're, you're not going to have to do anything too fancy, for lack of a better word. You're just going to be able to keep on a-walking. But again, what you remember from a performance is not, wow, that made reasonable sense all the way through. You remember <laughs> those three or four or five or six moments where that actor just, that character did something you never saw coming and yet was thrilling and perfect. And you discover those things when you get to a place where you can't do anything but something thrilling and perfect and get to the next thing in the play. Ridiculous, ridiculous example of this. I saw the play Elling with Dennis O'Hare, who to me is, I watch him paint a house. I don't care. Um, I would totally watch him paint a house. <laughs> <laughs> I really would watch him do anything. He, it was a moment in the play that honestly, I don't even, like, I don't remember what scene it was in. It clearly wasn't the pivotal moment of the play, but I clearly remember it. It was so compelling. It was so interesting. Where he ended up, did you guys see this? No. He, it was with Jennifer Coolidge, and she, she's, she's this bigger-than-life kind of character, and he's this he-can't-leave-his-house kind of person. And he is being forced into, physically, literally, forced into the corner by her. And he gets up against the wall, and he's, you see, you watch him, and he's so alive. That's why he's just so brilliant to watch. But you watch him suss out his options, and he, <laughs> and she's just bigger than he is. And she, he's like, trying to, you, you see him go through like seven options in his head, and the one that seemed the most brilliant to him, which he does, was he crawled up the wall, but the entire wall. He was completely away from her within two steps, but he just kept crawling against the wall because that's how trapped he felt. <laughs> and he thought, if I just crawl all the way up to this corner, she'll stay in that corner, and at least that's step one. But it, it was the most fascinating, because I never would have thought that. You watched him sussing out the options, and the options would have been, the obvious options, sorry, were to be, to push her, to run around her, to kneel down, whatever. I, what he did was not anything I could have made up in my head. <laughs> not anything, and was brilliant. It was brilliant. And I think, God, I, I mean, I, that thing what you're saying about you would watch him do anything, and I totally agree. I think he's wonderful. But it's so interesting, when you think about the actors that you love, you never think... Uh, oh my goodness, he's so talented. He always does everything just right. Right. You never think that. You think <laughs> they do this thing that you never would have thought of, but makes perfect sense. I mean, it's sort of the acting <laughs> equivalent um, of that moment in Indiana Jones when Indy goes into the market and the guy with the sword comes out and swings the sword and swings the sword and swings the sword, and then Indy pulls out the gun and shoots him. <laughs> that is... That that what? that is a moment. I do remember that now, is, now that he said it. That, well, and twenty whatever years afterwards, you right. remember that moment because it was that moment that was made somehow more sense than the thing that you expected to happen. 
And that's the thing is if you could really, again, get out of your own way, make a role your own, make a moment your own, it is going to make much more sense on you than whatever the quote-unquote obvious or quote-unquote right choice would be. And therefore, you're going to have the audience sitting there going, I never, ever, ever would have expected that, and yet what else could that person possibly have done? And that's thrilling to see. Do you know what is this, the, the dumb-dumb version of this? Is that <laughs> the... Uh, but it's something I try it to remember the a lot. It wasn't Indiana Jones? <laughs> <laughs> no. The thing I try to remember a lot is that I think a lot of things are funny. I Like me, personally, I think a lot of things are funny. I think a lot of things are funny that most people don't think are funny <laughs> because I'm uncomfortable. But I, I just think that most things are funny. I laugh at a lot of things. There was a good chunk of my life that I would leave that at the door when I came into rehearsal, especially if it was a drama. It was very serious. The thing I'm really kind of playing with now is like, is bringing that in the room with me. If, and I, I'm telling you, the times that I've surprised myself the most is when I laugh at the most inappropriate moments in a rehearsal. And don't assume that that's wrong. <laughs> like, just right. let it maybe be... And you know the difference when... I'm not talking about breaking character. I'm talking about, like, just... I th Actually, no, I'll take that back. I think a lot of people lump in the notion... You're breaking character when you break away from the obvious, when you break away from what's laid out in front of you and what you assume the role should be. That's breaking character, I think, a lot. But laughing when you think you probably shouldn't? How many times? I do that 27 times a day. <laughs> 27 times a day. I laugh when I probably should not. So uh, that's one little dumb-dumb example, but it's, it's something that it's... I know, I don't know. One of the, the things that I feel is like a hoop that people try to jump through, an expectation that people have in a particular script or story is when the script calls for you to cry. And I find that a lot of people stumble through the hoop, around the hoop, you know, right up to the hoop, because they have this expectation of what she cries in the stage direction has to mean for the play. And and one thing you said before about the taking, if I take this turn now, I won't get to this place later. And I feel like there's this thing as an actor about being able to cry, but you shouldn't be fake crying. And so, you know, it's trying to like manufacture an emotion. And I, I feel like it's the one thing, the one physical thing that can, can really like be this big hurdle for Put people up. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so how that is one place where you definitely are putting yourself in your own way so how do you get you know well I would I would argue that a a couple things I would argue a that stage a stage direction that says she cries okay just chuck that right out the window in the early process of rehearsing because a it's probably what the last actor did and that's probably why it's in the stage directions but I don't know I chuck it out the window in general but I also think that in tune with what we were saying earlier is to be a little more forgiving of yourself and especially in the rehearsal, rehearsal process instead of making it about I'm not crying, I'm a bad actor just let it be what it is I'm not crying, maybe I'm somebody that at a funeral, I'm, uh, this is where I'm at emotionally, mm -hmm. I'm, this is where I'm at right now and let's just see what happens mm -hmm. from here another, thing, and another, like, another difficulty though is like if the, the line of the other person says don't cry, there's a million and twelve yeah. ways you can go around that and, and I, yeah. it, depending on Good example. In raging, I was I was at uh, I was stage man assistant stage manager production of Antigone, and uh, it was the scene with the nurse and Antigone, and the nurse is supposedly 
the person who basically raised her, right? Am I correct? They have that sort of relationship. It's very similar to it. And uh, um, something happens. They're having a discussion. And Antigone's line to the nurse is, don't cry. Don't cry. The actress playing Antigone stopped rehearsal about 17 times because the woman playing the nurse wasn't crying and she wanted to cut the line. The rage I felt, the internal rage I felt, of, of, off the top of my head, off the top of my head, don't cry, I know you so well, I know you're about to, you're not giving it to me right now, but I know you're about to, don't cry. That's way number one you can handle that situation out of 7,500. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't, don't be so damn literal. Don't be so, don't be so literal. Let it, let it be... Let the moment be what it is and just see what happens. And even if you are required to cry, sometimes the director will want you to cry, especially when you are still learning the scene and figuring it out and exploring. Mm -hmm. You want to keep pushing through because the thing is, there are many different ways that people cry. Mm -hmm. There are many different ways that people cry. There are people can be in a moment, can be looking you dead in the eyes Mm -hmm. and steely and sobbing. And but but there, but there is something I have always found. Whenever it comes time for someone to cry, quote unquote, and they feel as though they need to manufacture it, it is always the same cry. It is always that crumple in on yourself sad, self-pitying cry. The kind of cry actually, you actually never see in life. Exactly. You never see, and if you do, it's not somebody who's sad, it's somebody who's trying to manipulate you anyway. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, think about it. Yeah. They're, they're actually busy doing something, it's not crying, they're trying to manipulate you. There's another you thing about, right? no? about this, though. <laughs> I think when you're, when you're exploring all of these different things, not only do you have obligations to the text, or to the director that now you need to cry, but you also have opportunities from the text and the director and from all of these choices that you're working to make and all of these ways that you're building your own path to make sense for yourself. And if you give yourself, you, if you trust yourself really, and you give yourself some patience and some time in that explore, you know, in the exploration and rehearsal, you, you may just get there. <laughs> No, you it you it may not be a problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm 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 arguing yeah. if you're a human being, you have crying in you. Yeah, yeah. But that's that, I think that that's that, <laughs> somewhere that that's is that if you decide you're going to stop and fake cry, you're never going to find it. You're yeah. going to, you're stopping the scene every time to fake cry, and you're absolutely right. I think if you push through, you're gonna find the reason that you do. If you find it three lines later. Well, you can bring it back to the line where you need to cry. But if you're going to stop the scene every time to make it look like you're crying when you're in rehearsal and there isn't an audience, um, the odds of you finding the actual crying uh, get slimmer. And I would argue that you're never, ever going to fool anyone. So don't, like, just don't do that. Just don't do that. It's such a, it's just a waste of your own time. What other ways do you get in your own way? Uh, sometimes when you're walking into rehearsal, especially it's, you've said it before, Kit, you know, it's a job you really wanted or people that are really, you're impressed by people mm-hmm. that you really want to be working with and you really want to impress them. Um, or people who have a lot more experience than you do and you're, you feel like maybe you're auditioning a little bit for them. You, you kind of want to push and, and your your pride is on the line. You feel like, Every, every choice that I make, everybody's watching, and you end up kind of self-conscious and concerned about how you present yourself to the other people in the room, other people that you 
really want <laughs> to impress. And I feel like that is a huge hurdle to jump because it gets, it, 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 make, it completely disconnects you from being able to do the work that you're there to do. And I think that gets into something that we were talking a bit about before, too, about ultimately what it does is it adds additional people into the play. You know, you're playing the scene not with the other character, but with the other character and their ghost sidekick alter ego, too. And it's very difficult. And especially if you're working with people who you really respect, like, from afar, um, it can be really challenging to just go in and do your work. But it feels like... a a, what they're going to respect is if you are really in there and doing your own work. Well, but, go yeah. ahead. Good. I was going to say, and, and that's the one thing you actually have to hold on to, to fall mm -hmm. back on. That is what you know how to do. Yeah. That's the answer. Yeah. I mean, there really is a degree to which it can't be this simple, but it has to be this simple. It's your job to go in and do your work. And you need to hold on to that as an actor. Um you need to remind yourself before you walk in the room why you're there. And you need to, if you're getting to play ball with people you really respect, play the best game you can because you're not going to get a better partner than the person that you're really work looking forward to working with. I think a lot of it comes down to just remaining open like that. We talked about that a bunch. Also, too, what gets in your way in, that, in the same vein is not being able to take direction. I've been in rooms with actors that can't do that. And I think it's a pride thing. I think it's to save face. I think it's a million and one reasons why they argue with the director. Or I didn't see it that way. You know, like there's a whole argument that takes place. Instead of just seeing it as a gift, like the director's offering you a chance to look at it in a way you didn't think about. And that gives you a whole 17 more options of something to do then if you just are open to it and let it in. How do you deal with that self-consciousness issue? Because that is something that, that, that I think underlies all of this, um, is that idea that whether it's expectation, whether it's something else, that you are too aware of yourself to let yourself go. I try to find something else to pay attention to. The best case scenario is the other person on stage. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the simplest answer for me. Stop thinking about myself and think about what am I doing and who's here playing with me. What are they doing? I think it's also fun in terms to think of it. Also, the rehearsal is like a big play play box. Not a word. <laughs> big sandbox. Because it, it, it's a... Uh, you're getting permission to act out. You're getting permission to try a bunch of things you wouldn't normally try in your real life because of the million and one, you know, justifications why you can't behave that way. And yet one of the challenges is usually you're being asked to do it in front of a bunch of people who you just met three days ago. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a degree to which this is the lot you have chosen mm -hmm. in your life. Uh, it's something I know uh, Tim has said several times on earlier episodes about if you get down on yourself for the fact that you have to go out and audition, well, that's you chose the life of being an actor. If you don't like auditioning, that's part of the life of being an actor. Part of the life of being an actor is you're going to be changing jobs constantly you are going to have a rehearsal period that is always too short and you need to show up and do your best work from day one and in a room full of people who you don't necessarily know, but that's what you're signing up to do. And it doesn't mean you're not going to be scared. I mean, it's scary and you just do it anyway. And use it if you need to. 
you know, use it if you need to. You know, that actually can very often be a very useful thing to do early on in rehearsal in terms of, you know, what to focus on, what to try to learn from. If you're feeling anxiety about being around new people, well, then really focus on who is new to you, who is new to your character in the play. Really spend some focusing time to, uh, you know, on that relationship because you know what, what you're bringing into the room is going to be about that. If it's a scene that is a physically intimate scene, use the first three rehearsals to work on how uncomfortable your character may be with being physically intimate with this person. Since that's, again, something that you will be bringing and will be genuine and that you can then see how it lives in your character. Well, and you say, use it if you need to, but I, I kind of would say, use it because it is where you are. That is exactly what you are bringing into this room, into this process, into this character right now. And I think really all of pretty much we've been talking about up until now in terms of the challenges is about fear. It's about I fear that I will not do well. And um, that is more often than not what shuts you down. I think ironically the other thing that I often see shut actors down is not failure but success. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically that idea where you see an actor something strikes them, they're feeling something real, and they slow down and hold on to it to make sure it won't go away. And that is as sure a way as possible to make sure that whatever you're feeling is going to dissipate. You know, it's, it's you have to push through and you have to risk losing that real moment in order to let it expand. But it almost always will just expand and blow up in a wonderful way if you just keep doing what you're doing when you're feeling something instead of trying to stop to nurture the feeling. I read the, do you read the book, uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain? No. It's really good. It's a good book, but it, it's a <laughs> fictional book. Of, it's, all told, all, it's all told from the point of view of the family dog. Hmm. And uh, the point is that the, the owner of the dog is a race car driver, so he teaches the dog like basically life lessons through race car driving. And one of them is how important it is. Like it's, it's a, he said race car drivers cannot have any memory because the second you're memorizing, you're remembering what just happened, you're out of the moment and you're, you, you could be dead. And there's something really, I don't know, interesting about that is this, this, if you're, the second you decide to hold on and luxuriate, you're gone, you're out of the moment. You're, you're not paying attention. You're not, you're not with your partner anymore. You're not, the, the more you could just focus on letting everything kind of just come as it comes. I don't know. So uh, we've talked uh, about why it's important to get out of your own way and how people do it. And I think we also have addressed, you know, some sort of some of the broader situational things about what to do when you confront specific circumstances. But do you guys have thoughts on practical things that you can do in rehearsal to free yourself up, to allow yourself to really be engaged in the process and in the character? to get yourself out of your own way. Well, something that Jen said that was really interesting to me was the idea of the focusing on your partner. That if, if you are, you know, obsessing about what you look like, start trying to look at somebody else and, you know, direct a, a run or a, a rehearsal towards, you know, figuring out what somebody else is doing. And I think that can help you just lift lift out of yourself. I had a friend who did that specific thing, but this is separate from our company, but the, the, a friend who said that they were doing a rehearsal once where they could not, they were playing a, like a good-looking character where they're not used to doing. They, it was like out of they're like a sexy character. And they, she couldn't get home. <laughs> she just couldn't do it. So she devoted, she 
said I all day at rehearsal today, I made it my goal that by the end of the rehearsal I could sketch him. So she just took him in detail by detail so she could sketch him by the end. And I thought that was pretty brilliant. I actually mm-hmm. think that strikes on something that is so important, which is a lot of times the way to free yourself up to find Sorry. the thing that's right is to make the active choice to do something you know is wrong. That if you that the character is not trying to sketch the other person. <laughs> but there is something about making that choice that you're not going to do the scene quote-unquote right. You can't possibly do the scene quote-unquote right if that's what you're working on. But it then totally frees you up. If you know you're not going to do it right, you're going to do it however it comes out. And that's when you're going to find those things that are not right quote-unquote but are perfect for you. Um, you know, and, and you, you need to give yourself more than permission to walk away, but you need to make the choice to walk away from what is expected and what is right. And that's how you'll find the surprising things. And then I will say, you say some of those things you do and you decide that they're not, you know, that uh, they're not what's right and that's what frees you up. But some of them you might discover actually sort of are. Or that you might want to keep. There actually is no reason why that actor, why that character couldn't be an artist and find themselves at some point in the scene where it's important that she be looking at that character if the director said that moment was really interesting the way that you were looking at him in that moment I want to keep it there's no reason why you can't make the choice that your character is an artist and is somehow struck by his ear in that moment and thinking that she wants to draw it when she gets home it also certainly keeps it active because then you're like for example, what if the the direction was something as simple as I want you to really take, really look, at, really just look at him. A lot of people will play looking. I'm going to play looking intensely at you. And what does that feel like and look like to me? Versus, if I really have to draw this person by the end, I better actually take them in on some level. Like, wow. and, and you're, then you're actively, actively looking. It it was a favorite trick of one of uh, my acting teachers in college. If you look at your wristwatch in the middle of your scene, she would stop the scene and ask you what time it was. Hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Except you, that you have to, you have to have really looked at your watch. I do especially love it uh, when a character in an actor is playing in a hurry and looks at their watch and are and not, not wearing, wearing one. <laughs> <This> is... <laughs> Yikes. It's a choice. (laughs) There are also some exercises that you can do that really help to get you out of your own way once you've been working on something for a little while, you know, and kind of have gotten to know it. Um, But when you're really trying to break through it works, these are things that work especially well in monologues, but um, also you can work on in a scene. And they're incredibly simple, Um, but there are five of them that I really recommend, and they work for different things. Uh, A lot of them came from Gene Lasko, a fantastic uh, uh, acting and directing teacher. I think we've mentioned in the past. But one of them is, they call it the fast exercise, and that is literally just doing the scene as fast as you can. Just as fast, as fast, as fast as as fast as you can. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it's an open mind stuff, or the slings and hours, or it's fortune, brr, as fast as you can. Or to do it as slow as you can. Literally. To... Be... Both of those things 
it is really extraordinary when you just book through something, the things that just rush out of your soul and the things that you never knew you felt about something, um, about a phrase, about why you say something. These things just show up for you when you're not second-guessing them. Similarly, the slow exercise, when you find that and just let each word exist on their own, just the way that the world opens up in front of you in terms of all of the different implications and associations that those things have for you as you live in your character or your character as they are embodied by you. It is really extraordinary. And again, it's nothing except for going as fast as you can or as slow as you can because then what happens is it takes a lot of work to go really fast. It takes a lot of work and discipline to go really slow. So that's all you have time to think about. So everything that's doing acting for you is not the thinking part of you. It's that 30 years of experience, that 40 years of experience that you've had in your life that's showing up to be interesting on your behalf. Similarly, there's the loud exercise and the soft exercise. Literally, as loud as you can, you do the monologue. Or so quiet that it is audible, but only to you and not to someone that's standing five feet away from you. Again, the things that you learn about where that lives viscerally in your gut largely with the loud exercise, or breaks your heart, especially with the soft exercise, you will be astonished. If you have a monologue, seriously, take an hour and do those four exercises on it. You will never do that monologue the same way again. You may not think of yourself as the same kind of actor again, given what you're going to learn about the surprising ways in which you encounter things. Another, the, the fifth one that I, is, a, is a really great one is we call it the pointing exercise, which is literally if you talk about something, a person or a place or a thing, point at it, whatever direction it is at. Again, you will find extraordinary things about your relationships to the people and the places when you are actually having to call out, not consciously, but just you're going and you're pointing, the associations that come up for you are really, really surprising. And sometimes the places that you end up pointing are really surprising. When the line is, and you talk to a fool, and you find that you're pointing to yourself on the word fool, or you find that you're pointing to one of the other characters on the word fool, and not pointing to the imaginary fool that you've been talking about when you've done the monologue in the past, you've done the scene in the past. Again, these are just ways to give yourself something incredibly specific to do with your conscious mind so that all of your associations that live in your unconscious that can be there to do a lot of your heavy lifting for you will just show up. The things that I find, uh, you know, most interesting, especially about watching those exercises, but also about doing them, is that when you are bridled with that exercise, you want to do other things other than the exercise. You want to say something more quietly. You want to say something more loudly or faster. It and it it and you keep reining yourself into the exercise so that when you are finally allowed to to go, it's just so full of all the stuff. Like especially if you do the exercise, do the exercise all the way through whatever, and then you go back and do it just however. You with know, whatever you've with got. whatever you've got, yeah, it, it's just amazing, like how full it is that that all the stuff that you were feeling and doing during the exercise that no one could see or hear because you had to do the thing. It it just 
comes out in this amazing and surprising ways when when you're when you can let go. And if you're in the middle of a scene and are finding yourself being, you know, sort of trapped like things are not you're not feeling connected, you're not whatever when you're in rehearsal. Sometimes it's just really as simple as waggle your arms around over your head for a second and come back in. There is something about just waving your arms around or sing a line or again that idea of doing something that is totally wrong. But it breaks you out of that expectation of I'm in the middle of this scene and I'm... No, 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 I'm shaking it off. It's amazing how much just doing that for three seconds in the middle of a scene can sort of just reconnect you back into what's going on. And again, I think a lot of it is because you have given yourself actively the permission to not do what is expected of you, to do what you need to do. And it starts carrying into the rest of the scene. You know, it's interesting. I find that helpful when... uh a lot of times if I'm working on something and I find that I'm moving unnecessarily, my, that I, I recognize that now as energy that's kind of caught up in my limbs that needs to be refocused. So what I'll end up doing is do a crazy dance around while I'm doing the lines and crazy inappropriate physical movement until I feel like I've kind of refocused myself and I stop and I no longer need to make that movement to make myself clear. It's just a lot of times actors will move unnecessarily because it's their own nerves. It's their nerves. It's their. It's just you get to refocus that energy. So sometimes you do that by sort of committing to it a hundred percent, and then yeah. And a come lot of that. I mean, one of the things I think generally that's helped, and we did a whole episode on this before, and people can go back and listen to it if they want. But the idea of goal-oriented rehearsing, and where when you do a run of something when you're in the exploratory phase of rehearsal that you really pick one thing you're focusing on and trying to learn about and you do it um but what that can really do is give you permission rather than saying oh i need to sort of figure out this problem of i'm moving unnecessarily you know what take a run and deal with it deal with it and you'll be done you'll you'll be you'll you'll have figured it out i actually had a similar thing in a project i was working on before and i found myself i kept sort of pacing moving on lines I wasn't sure why I was moving. So I actually did a run. It flummoxed the director until I explained to him afterwards why I did it. But I did it as a Roomba because we were doing it in the round. And so literally I would just walk. I'd do, we were doing the scene, but I would just walk until I'd hit a wall and then walk until I hit another and walk until I hit another. But I swear to God, once we did that, it was totally clear to me. It was like, wait a minute, I should be moving here. I didn't want to be moving here. I wanted to be looking at him here. And all of that was done. I had so much clarity, I could have spent the whole rest of the afternoon kind of trying to figure out 5% of that every run. Instead, I gave over five minutes to just getting that out of my system. And again, it's about giving you permission to do things that are wrong. It is amazing how much that points immediately to you about what is right. Because if you're kind of trying to hew to what you expect to be right, it will always feel a little bit right. And what you want is the thing that feels perfect the thing that feels extraordinarily right, the thing that feels like you can't not do this thing. And so when you do things that are wildly out of the expectation, sometimes you will find those things just by doing that. Sometimes it will be the last thing you expect, and other times you will do something that will make you realize it is not that, but I think I know what it is and I'm going to try it. You have to give yourself permission to fail. And something that I find that I think can really help you give yourself permission to do those things is to be keeping a journal in rehearsal and really writing down what you've learned from each run. Because 
you will be surprised by when you try things, what you learn from them. But when you walk home and you see that you've got a whole notebook full of things you learned from trying to do unexpected things, it gives you permission to do it more often. But what happens if you are working in a room with a director that doesn't necessarily work in that way, that wouldn't necessarily allow the space in their rehearsal for you to walk from wall to wall until you find what you needed to find in that five minutes. Do you guys have? Before you guys, I actually have the same question because I was in a rehearsal the other day of a scene and literally to get myself out of my own way, I did the scene as someone else, like doing an impression of someone that I know. Um, not Carrie. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, honestly, like looking back on it, like it helped me in certain moments and I think it was entirely useful for me. But I mean, it was, it was ridiculous, <laughs> like ridiculous and not right. And I like, would I have, would I A have done that and would I A have, or B have been <laughs> able to do that if I was in a room with a director? Um, what I found recently with things, situations like that is you can kind of make almost any situation, I think I can kind of make almost any situation work by translating it into another, just translate the language of it. And it's so, for example, say I was moving around a lot unnecessarily and decided to commit to moving around the room, committing to that, whatever, that's my idea, raise my hand. We don't have time for that. The director doesn't want to do that, he just wants to do the scene. I just will incorporate something like that into what I'm doing. For I, What would happen is I would incorporate... I would just turn the language on itself. I would say, okay, I really want to move all over this room right now, and I'm not allowed to, mm -hmm. and I have to deal with that. That usually will help you in almost any circumstance. If there's something you want to be doing and have to do something else, it, it kind of lends itself to usually what's, whatever's going on. Yeah. I find. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think there are four answers to that that, I have <laughs> that are at different levels. One of them is you do have to be considerate and professional and that there are times where mm -hmm. it is not appropriate to go Roomba around the room. <laughs> I mean, you know, you do have to have your sensitivity of, about that. Part two is, though, rehearsal is your time, too. It's not just the director's time. And there's a degree to which sometimes you need to demand the time that you need. You need to have a sense of what's appropriate, but if there's something that you need to do that in you know is going done. to help you, that I think you have the right to say to the director, I need a run. I need a run to try something. And, you know, if they're not going to let you, you know, they're not going to let you, but, you know, it's their loss that they're not letting you do the work that would help you. And, um, you know, but you certainly have the right to voice that it would be helpful to do something. I also think that there are many, many, many times where you can do the work, this kind of work, without anybody knowing that it's what you're doing. Um, you know, for you to have chosen someone who you're doing the scene as, quote-unquote, I, I don't think anyone would pick up that that's what you were doing. A director would watch it, they'd see that you were making choices, and they would tell you what parts worked for them and what parts didn't work for them. It's a run. They don't know what you were working on. You know, and similarly, that I, I do think you need to you know, be able to do an analog. That if the Roomba thing is the thing that would help you, 
you know, as you were saying, but for whatever reason, you're in a part of rehearsal where that's not appropriate to ask for. You've asked for it and you've said that they can't do it. Yeah, but what you can do is figure out what is the analog. Is what it's going to be is I am going to focus on these are my are my this is my blocking i am going to make it in exactly x number of steps from here to here i am going to keep my you know whatever the choices are going to be that's going to let it be a similar sort of challenge but within the confines of and especially that roomba thing is really about setting up confines for yourself what if this is the only thing i'm doing well you could do it you know in in a way that's more appropriate to the part of rehearsal you're on also and this is the last thing and it's a trick but I have found, it's something I've suggested to actors who have asked the same question of me before and they've tried it and it's worked. If you go to a director and you say, I really need your help, I want to try this and I really need you to tell me what it looks like to you, it makes them feel important and like part of the process and like you're letting them in on your acting process and they will be very excited to let you do it. So part of it is about how you frame it that it's not just something I need, but it's something I need you to help me with. Directors tend to be much more open to that when they feel like they're... Because I think a lot of times, candidly, the reasons directors don't let actors run is because they're directors who don't really understand how actors work. And they're intimidated by how actors work. And they're afraid of actors working in ways that they're not going to understand what happens, what's going on. But if you invite them into your process, more often than not, they will want to come inside and play, either because they like playing with actors or because they've always wanted to and no actor has invited them to before. And I think as long as you do this all, like, yeah, if you understand the, if you respect that it's, like, you just heard him say, okay, we're going to need to run this whole number one more time, and you don't choose that minute knowing you're going on break in five minutes to be like, well, I just really, I need to... I need to do this thing. <laughs> like you just you have to you have to have a sense of how the day is going. You have to have a sense of when it's appropriate. And but it, I do, and in most professional situations I've been, directors are very res- positively responsive to that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah, and and I think it's another part of getting in your own way that we haven't talked about, and is actually probably for a whole other episode altogether. <laughs> but. Some ways actors get in their ways is by putting their feet down and stomping around about wanting their own process and making it a hostile work environment. (laughs) Because that's part of being a professional too. And that's part of, you know, being able to, the same way that certainly you hope a director is going to create an environment that allows people to be free to work. Actors need to create that environment too. Um, You know, and so, you know, that that's, that's one way that you can stay out of your own way is by maintaining a healthy and positive relationship with the people around you. And that's certainly a way that directors who feel like they have a good relationship with you and you've been respectful of them and their time, and if you're asking for something, it's because you need it and not because you think you have the right to it and not because you're trying to undermine them, but because you're all there for the same reason, you're all there on the same team, they're going to be much more likely to let you do that. So I think maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If you are enjoying this and are not subscribed, please go to iTunes and subscribe. If you are subscribed but want to let other people know about it, please let them know they can subscribe at iTunes. And uh, please go and uh, write us a review and give us stars. Um, if you want to learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, visit our website, www.cryhavoccompany.org, and go there also to learn about our upcoming public events, which will take place in our new rehearsal and performance facility on Thursday. 36th Street in Manhattan. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions about the podcast, please write to us at podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. So, for myself, Jen, Jen, Jenny, Carrie, and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavacompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.